This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. No one has to feel by themselves if there is something out there that's stopping you from achieving your goals or your wants or is generally interfering with your happiness. They really, really don't. After coming through some of the most trying times ever that the world has faced over the past 18 months, it's understandable that many of us are finding some things difficult. But it may not just be the fallout from COVID. Anything can weigh on you heavily, can't it? Personally, in this past year, I've suffered bereavement, I've had a drastic change in my work pattern, and whilst dealing with things like this, whilst making sure that I'm able to be there for my nearest and dearest, it's been hard at times and have reached out because that's something that we all need to do at some point in our lives, it really is. And if this sounds familiar, then maybe BetterHelp can help you. What BetterHelp offers is a worldwide, much more affordable service than any traditional offline counselling in which it assesses whatever issues you may be facing and calling on its broad range of expertise available. Specialists in a vast range of issues, some of which you may not have locally available to you, BetterHelp matches you up with your own licensed professional therapist, selected that best suits your needs for professional counselling. In less than 24 hours, you can start communicating confidentially online with your own selected personal counsellor, whom you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with, or whom you can message anytime you want or feel, and from whom you can expect timely and thoughtful responses back. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE and join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash TCE. Hello all and the warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, North Wales' premier one person and his cat true crime podcast that seeks out some of the more obscure, unfamiliar and often long forgotten tales of true crime from all corners of the UK and Ireland. I'm your host Paul, the creator and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, the hairy football peaks as here as ever too, And you guys, the wonderful enthusiasts who make this such a worthwhile job for me to do, well, you're the integral part and you complete it. It's as fabulous as ever having you joining me here today, which I thank you all so much for doing so. And I do hope that as I'm coming to you today, then it finds that you and those closest to you are all good, you're all safe and you're all well. 
So because I'm coming back with part two of All Shop and No Sex, a tale which has had the outlines treatment from Jess Carter, I've always enjoyed collaborating with Jess, and this one has been no exception to that at all. It really hasn't. Now, I'm not going to go around the houses too much to begin with, really. I'm also writing and recording this well ahead of it being released. If you haven't heard part one of our tale yet, then I suggest that you stop here and you go back and listen to that one first, because without it, this episode will make about as much sense as the plot of a bloody perfume advert. For those who have listened to part one, I know this is the age of binge culture and some people just can't wait for a full story to be out there. But for those who have listened and you just want a little recap, we left off last time around having learned about an armed robbery that took place one Tuesday in March 2010 at the rural post office in Melsonby in North Yorkshire, which was owned and run by Robin and Diana Garbutt, the second robbery in just over a year. According to Robin, following the robbery and the raid of fleeing, he went upstairs to find that his wife had been bludgeoned over the head with a blunt instrument while she lay asleep in bed. It then transpired that something about Robin's story didn't sit too well with the police really, leading to three and a half weeks after Diana's death, Robin being arrested and charged with her murder. It was the kind of crime that on the surface didn't look likely to have been committed by a husband, for Robin and Diana Garbutt seemed to have a loving relationship. Everyone who knew them swore that they were the picture of happiness. Nevertheless, police were convinced that they had their man, and so in April 2010, a murder charge was raised against Robin Garbutt. After some legal wrangling and consternations about examinations of important evidence, Robin Garbutt's trial was postponed until March 2011, exactly where we left off last time. So we begin this episode on March the 21st, 2011, the day that the trial of Robin Garbutt for the murder of his wife Diana began. As always, the episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events which some people may find disturbing and or distressing. So please use discretion whilst you're listening in, folks. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiast and Jess Carter, of course, for the second part of a tale that I've entitled All Shop and No Sex. Opening the case for the Crown at Teesside Crown Court in Middlesbrough on March the 21st, 2011, Prosecutor David Hatton QC told the jury in his opening address. The prosecution maintained that the defendant murdered his wife. We do not take on the responsibility of establishing a motive. Only two people knew what their relationship was really like, and one of them is dead. Behind the facade of a happy and financially comfortable couple, there were problems, and all was not as it might have appeared on the surface to the public eye. Now, a fair number of Melsonby villagers were still confused as to what had occurred almost a year before on the morning of Tuesday, March the 23rd, 2010. The story that Robin Garbutt had told police, as we heard previously, was that he'd gone to open the post office safe at around 8.35am that morning, and it was then that he'd been disturbed by a man in dark clothing and a balaclava, clutching a hold all and a handgun, who had demanded all of the cash in the shop, 
telling him, Don't be stupid, we've got your wife upstairs. After the robber had made off with more than £16,000 from the safe and the contents of the shop till, Robin had quickly raced upstairs to be confronted with the bloody image of his wife's dead body, to which end he had immediately summoned assistance from the emergency services. This was roughly the story that he told to the police on the day of the murder, and was the narrative that the villagers of Meltonby were also told, and for the most part believed. However, it appeared that the police were not quite as trusting though, and as the trial began, it became clear that detectives had suspected pretty much right from the off that Robin Garbutt was not being completely truthful to them about what had gone on that morning. This became apparent beginning with the testimony from the second police officer to arrive on the scene that day, PC Mark Reed, who made a point of saying that Garbutt's story, I quote, jumped about all over the place which then made it difficult for him to get information so that he might get a description of the robber out for circulation. He also made a point of referring to Garbutt, sobbing without any tears. So, from such a short time into the investigation, police had begun to question Robin's story, and the next point highlighted to the court was something that may not have occurred to you throughout the account. So far through the tale, I've referred to a raider, a masked man dressed in black, black hold all, armed with a gun, it could be the spectre of Donald Nielsen almost, couldn't it? But think here, according to Robin Garbutt, what were the raider's words? Don't be stupid, we've got your wife. Plural. If, as Garbutt claimed, the man with the hold all had said, we've got your wife, then the implication was that there was another person upstairs with Diana, and one who was also probably armed, given that the man downstairs had a weapon. It had struck PC Reed as strange that Robin did not mention hearing another, or the raider calling out to an accomplice when fleeing, or even him arming himself as he charged upstairs, in case there was indeed another man up there holding his wife captive. When interviewed as a suspect, Robin had told police that the man with the holdall had neither an iron bar in his hand nor blood on his clothes. But we know there was also no evidence recovered of that mysterious second man upstairs or any indication that Garbutt had given him even a moment's thought as he ran up to check on Diana. Police attention had also been drawn to the matter of the silent alarms. As we heard, there were three silent alarms dotted about downstairs, one next to the safe, one next to the till, and one at the connecting door. Despite there being these three alarms, all of which were readily available to Robin during the course of the robbery, and after the raider had fled, none of them had been activated. Now it couldn't be that he didn't know how to, for the court heard evidence that he'd been instructed in their use at least three times by two different post office technicians. He'd also taught Linda Sharp, one of his shop assistants, how to use them some months earlier, although at trial he claimed that he didn't know that the alarms were silent, and in answer to the accusation that he deliberately did not press them, because the robbery was a fictional load of bollocks, although that was probably put much more eloquently in court, Garbutt said he was simply, I quote, 
caught in the agony of the moment. Sounds pretty dodgy, doesn't it? Although playing a bit of devil's advocate here, you might ask why, if he was faking the robbery, why he wouldn't just activate the silent alarm anyway? What difference would it make whether or not the police turned up because he pressed the alarm or called 999? Because the outcome would be the same anyway. It's worth noting here also that in the armed robbery which had taken place a year earlier, Garbutt had also failed to activate the silent alarms. Perhaps caught in the moment, he really just didn't think of them. But it's worth noting as well that following the 2009 robbery, which without the murder is almost a carbon copy, isn't it? Garbutt either was allocated money by the post office to install CCTV on the premises, or he made a point of claiming that he would himself out of savings. Either way, this CCTV was never installed. The money allocated for it instead went towards the kitchen renovation that the Garbutts were still a year later, only midway through. A fatal oversight or convenient? But these weren't the only matters that initially raised police suspicion though. In the first part of the tale, I told you that Robin Garbutt had, over the course of that morning, repeatedly asserted that his wife's body had still been warm when on the phone to emergency services and following her being examined by paramedics. He'd said it to his neighbour, Mrs. Dye, prompting her to touch Diana's leg to see if that were the case, and then he'd said it again to Michael Whitaker, the first paramedic on the scene, when he questioned how the rigor mortis that was apparent could be if she was still warm. And once again, when in the police car that lunchtime, on the way to give his first formal statement at Northallerton Police Station, he'd said again, if it was rigor mortis, why was her back still warm? Of course, no one is convicted of murder based on the feeling that someone isn't behaving quite right or that a story is a little jumbled. What it did do, however, was draw attention to Robin Garbutt's narrative of the day, and especially his story about the armed robber, for there appeared to be no good reason when apparently, almost hysterical over the death of his wife, why he would consistently dwell upon rigor mortis. Unless it was to invite closer attention to the armed robbery narrative, of which he was the sole witness. Prosecutor David Hatton posed this question, telling the jury, One of the questions you will have to consider if you accept this evidence of a robbery taking place is the likelihood of a robber or robbers being prepared to violently kill a female sleeping in her own bed at all, but then, having done so, to wait for perhaps four to six hours before going downstairs to rob the post office. And then, it has to be said, having been prepared to bludgeon the lady to death upstairs and wait for that length of time, to leave the defendant himself unharmed and unrestrained to raise the alarm. So. What did he mean when he said wait four to six hours before going downstairs? Where did this come from? Well, I'll hit you with that right now. In Robin's version of events, he leaves Diana asleep upstairs when he goes down at about 4.30am to get the shop ready to open at 5. He then does not have any inkling that anything is wrong until he encounters the armed raider at the foot of the stairs just after 830 
Before the trial, it seems that police had accepted Diana's time of death to be 6am at the earliest. But by the time the case went to court, and based on evidence from forensic archaeologist Dr Jennifer Miller, why an archaeologist, who knows, it was now calculated that the actual time of death would have to have been between 2.30 and 4.30am. Based on Diana's stomach contents, specifically the digestive state of the fish and chip supper that Robin and Diana had consumed the previous evening. Now this was established by purchasing a portion of fish and chips from the same Darlington fish and chip shop, mashing it all up and weighing it. They also found the paper wrappings and remains from the Garbutt's evening meal the night before the murder and estimated how much of the fish and chips was left over. The prosecution's food digestion scientist deducted the amount not consumed from the meal from the overall weight of a similar meal and judging by what was left in the stomach when it had stopped digestion at the time of death and what time Robin had said that they'd eaten, 8.30pm, was able to hypothesise the time of death to within what she felt was a reasonable two-hour period. This evidence was paired with the analysis into the rate of rigor mortis and hypostasis on Diana, as noted by the pathologist who examined her at the scene, Dr Stuart Hamilton, which already suggested that she'd been killed sometime up to an hour before 8.30am, although it was difficult to pinpoint an exact time using just these factors. For a case of brutal murder, there was a surprising lack of evidence discovered at the scene of the crime to support charges. Well, I say that, there was perhaps a surprising lack of evidence handling would perhaps be a better term. And so in the weeks before Robin Garbutt's arrest, with him in mind as the prime suspect, police had put most emphasis on finding out information about Robin and Diana's life and trying to link anything that may be discovered as a result back to the crime as a motive for murder. And when they did, lo and behold, it wasn't long before the story that Robin told of his happy and fulfilling marriage and the couple's rock-solid, profitable business looked to be called into question. The more police delved into the couple's marital and financial affairs, the more they realised that hidden just below the idyllic surface were actually several very strong motives for murder. The first, and perhaps most prominent, was when it emerged that Diana had not been as happy in her marriage as was assumed by all, for no less than three separate incidents in which she'd either cheated or was on the cusp of cheating on Robin came to light. The first of these had occurred two years previously in 2008, while the couple were staying with friends at a house in York. The man in question was a man named John Illingsworth, who when called as a witness, told the court that after a night out, he and Diana had found themselves the last ones still up at the house, alone on the sofa, after Robin had gone to bed. He said, I quote, It was cloudy because we were both very drunk. But he knew that the two of them had been intimate on the sofa. He found out later that Diana had confessed this to Robin. Jamie Hill QC, defending, asked him, you don't know whether she told him you'd kissed, cuddled or had sex. You ain't sure yourself. Illingsworth reiterated in his response that it was very unclear because of all the drink he'd consumed, but he did remember Diana saying, Whatever you're doing, 
you have to stop this because of Robin, and that he'd assumed that they'd had sex, because Diana had rung him the next day to inform him she was going to confess to Robin about the previous evening. When he'd asked her whether or not he should be expecting a visit from her husband, she'd reportedly said, Robin's not like that, he's not physical. Indeed, when given evidence, Robin himself later said of the incident, which he confirmed, I think Di was more upset than me about it. Now I can't help but wonder whether that such a statement was a mere attempt to downplay how he was feeling about her infidelity, because surely no bloke who thinks he's got a wonderful marriage and is madly in love with his wife is really going to be that nonchalant over her perhaps having drunken sex on a sofa with a stranger, is he? Really? From Illingsworth's testimony, it's obvious that Diana felt somewhat remorseful for this encounter, but it didn't stop a similar circumstance arising. By March of 2009, around the time that the first robbery at the post office occurred, Diana had started a flirtation with a man named Kevin Heapy, who lived in Chelmsford in Essex, and who was at the time married to Diana's cousin, Angela. It was revealed in court that while Kevin and his wife were going through what was described as a difficult period in their marriage, the flirtation with Diana had led to something a little bit more. It happened when the two of them were attending a family 40th birthday party in North Wales that March. Several of the attendees had gone out drinking and Kevin and Diana had been the last ones of the group out. As they walked home together at 3.30am, they ended up kissing. Unfortunately for Kevin, when he got back in, his wife Angela was waiting for him, and by his account they had a row in the kitchen, where he then admitted to kissing Diana that evening. He told the court that the following day, his wife had made him call up Robin Garbutt and confess to him what had happened, a conversation in which Kevin said he remembered Robin becoming confused and telling him, let's leave her at that. Robin himself said later that he certainly remembered the conversation occurring, but that Diana had denied that the kiss had ever happened, and they had indeed left it alone at that. Now whether or not it did happen, we do know that afterwards, Kevin Heapy and Diana ceased contact. Although she did send an email to him, which he deleted, without reading properly he was to claim, it was similar in tone to a previous note that she'd written to him, that was produced and read in court, in which she told Kevin that she felt as if she was, I quote, living in some fantasy world that I've created and totally indulged in. I thought that your marriage was doomed, and mine too, and that we were not hurting anyone, and what we had was special. I feel I've been part of something seedy, and I think we should have a time out. I will always be here to talk, but anything sexual should be off limits. However, she also said in it that if his marriage didn't work out, then perhaps the two of them could start over without the emotional baggage. Still think she's a happily married woman? The third man in Diana's life was a resident of Melsonby named Craig Hall. The two were friends on Facebook, where they spent a lot of time talking over Messenger about his divorce and engaging in what Mr. Hall described as cheeky banter, but which was better described as them discussing sex over the internet. 
The example Craig Hall gave to the court was him saying to her lines like, All right, loser, did you get it last night? What a silver-tongued bastard, eh? I bet the top shagger is shaking in his boots there, then. Which, to be fair, though, is about the quality of banter that you'd expect from a guy whose YouTube channel consists of some muppet going on about ham and a video of a woman named Shelley from Melsonby falling off a bar stool. Oh yes, get his views up and have a look. A link to it is in the episode show notes. Or don't. Do something more meaningful like counting your rice or your head hair or something like that. No. Diana and Hall mostly seem to spend a fair while messaging privately on Facebook. Sexual flirtation in which they would tell each other what they would do to each other if they were alone together. Although when they actually were alone, for when Robin was asleep, they used to go for nighttime bike rides around the village, which sounds a bit like something out of Last of the Summer Wine, apart from the charm or the smell of piss coming through the telly. However, Hall claimed that they were never actually physical on these rides. It was only ever online sexual banter between them. When asked what he thought the problem with the Garbutt's marriage was, and why Diana would venture into such discussions, Hall told the court, She was happy, but not with everything. It was the sex. Robin was just not interested in it. Diana said that he was all shop and no sex. I think I said, if my wife had had your interest in sex, I don't think we would have got divorced. Now this was something that other residents of Melsonby, Diana's closest girlfriends, had heard her say before, and was a sentiment which Robin at least partly confirmed, saying when asked about this claim whilst giving evidence. Di had a larger sex drive than myself. When you work in a shop, you get up at 4.30, you're tired. I know it's a poor excuse, but you do tend to be tired. He admitted to the court that they weren't having enough sex and would both have liked more, but Diana would reportedly become upset and would even ask Robin, do you find me attractive? To which he'd tell her that he did, he was just tired. The way he explains it, it was something they were always working on and attempting to rectify, his problem being that in the evenings he was tired, and he couldn't bring himself to have sex above the shop in the mornings. Diana had also reportedly told Craig Hall that she and Robin were going to see a sex therapist through Relate, and that they'd discussed the idea of Robin paying for her to live somewhere else in the village while they tried to work on their differences. The problem appeared to be that Robin was too focused on the run of the shop to pay attention to his wife, who was equally as focused on her lack of sex. When asked about these revelations, Robin claimed to know nothing of Diana's Facebook flirting, but knowing that she had a cheeky sense of humour, that he, I quote, wouldn't put a lot of emphasis on it. Now it's unclear when exactly in 2009 Diana and Hall had begun their online sexting. It's a dreadful phrase that isn't it, it really is, but it's an apt one or if it was before or after Kevin Heapy or John Illingsworth. But at trial, along with thoughts of the temporary separation, this was something Robin had dismissed as being long in the past. But long in the past didn't quite tie in with the police's discovery that at the time of her death, Diana was signed up for an account on the dating-focused social networking site, Badoo. Her profile there, 
on which she'd used a wedding photograph of her to make her look younger, said that she was looking to meet a male between the ages of 35 and 50, and whilst it's unknown if there was anyone special that she was chatting to on there, or even if she'd received or sent any messages to any other members, it is known that in the 24 hours before her death, she'd visited the Badoo site on three separate occasions, including being logged as active on there at around midnight, only a few hours before her murder. For my money, three liaisons and a dating site profile would be roughly four red flags too many for people. Your spidey sense will be off the bloody charts, eh? And most definitely would throw doubt on Garbutt's trial assertion that they had the best relationship and they were a loving couple. But alongside Diana's affairs, it also began to look more and more like the reasons for Robin's long hours in the shop and his less than enthusiastic sex drive might have had somewhat of a financial motivation and the stresses that went with that. The problem seemed to have started a few years previously with Diana's decreased interest in the post office job. It was said in court that the business had been on the market for around five years with an asking price of £450,000 but had had no buyer activity at all. While she'd become bored with the running of the store, Robin had become equally as fed up with her lack of help and had even once been heard to tell her to, I quote, get off her fat ass and do something. But she was about as interested though as I am in Ian Huntley's well-being, which meant that the shop and the bookkeeping that went along with it had increasingly become Robin's sole responsibility. Now, I spoke briefly in the previous episode about the shop's finances and how since the Garbutts had started running the business, the annual turnover had increased by more than 25% from 148 to £200,000. What I neglected to mention though, was that at the time of her death, Robin and Diana's finances were looking decidedly less than healthy. It was reported that they had rising debts which amounted to the region of some £44,000, £30,000 of which was credit card debt, plus a £60,000 mortgage. Between the two of them, they had no less than seven credit cards, all of which were running at, or near, their credit limit. Coincidentally, the night before Diana was killed, when Robin went to Batley's Cash and Carry in Darlington to pick up stock for the shop, he had attempted to pay for the £850 worth of goods, but the card had been rejected. Police alleged that in an attempt to fix their cash issues, and to fund a lifestyle which was referred to as lavish, and eight trips away in a year, nights out or dinner out on a regular basis, and an expensive gym membership, all on a modest post office wage, does seem lavish, Robin had resorted to misappropriating money from the business. It was implied at his trial that Diana was unaware of what her husband was supposedly doing, and that on the Monday evening before she was killed, when Robin had gone to the cash and carry and had the credit card rejected, it was Diana's card. This had meant that she was contacted by the bank, which, police theorised, had led to this misappropriation being discovered, which in turn, could have led to her death. Everything was reportedly in Diana's name, so if she had just discovered Robin's supposed theft of money, it could have meant him losing everything. 
This was a theory which was backed up by the evidence, which showed Diana to have been looking through their accounts that evening. Prosecutor David Hatton put this to Robin Garbutt when he took the stand, saying, First, you had an unhappy, unfaithful wife who didn't love you and found you inadequate. Do you agree? Garbutt replied, Totally untrue. Mr Hatton, Secondly, if she left, you would lose your future and your shop. You were about to be exposed and humiliated, and you couldn't take it. Garbutt replied, I wouldn't know what agreements we would make on that. Post office fraud investigator Andrew Keeley gave evidence to the court that concerning both the 2009 and 2010 armed robberies, Post Office Limited had recorded that an increase in requests from the Melsonby branch had been received for extra money to be deposited there in the months leading up to both robberies. Investigators stated that Robin had been padding out his own overdrawn current account by depositing large sums of money which were sent to his bank via special delivery. Theresa Bentley, a specialist economic crime investigator who had been given full access to the couple's personal and business accounts, gave evidence to this effect and stated to the jury that it was these cash deposits which were keeping the Garbutt's business and personal finances afloat. And while Robin denied that he and Diana were living well beyond their visible means, he did tell the court that not all of the business takings went through the till, which sounds very much like your standard tax fiddle to me. Diana's post office salary was £14,500, and the shop was only showing outright profits of £4,000 a year. According to police analysis, in the months leading up to the murder, the shop was losing a significant amount of money over time, an amount claimed to be somewhere around £14,000. Although Defence Counsel Jamie Hill did question whether or not the actual sum was that high. Interestingly, during the trial, the defence did not introduce any experts to run their own forensic analysis of the accounts as counter to the police's, but instead relied on merely cross-examining the prosecution's experts, Theresa Bentley and Andrew Keeley. Although the legitimacy of the 2009 post office robbery was not explicitly called into question, it was left open to the jury's interpretation as to whether these armed robberies had actually occurred at all. Police firmly believed that both were an elaborate work of fiction to cover up the fact that Robin had been stealing money from the business and to explain away a murder. Now you might ask yourself, if that were the case, then why did the police not uncover the deception in 2009 when they investigated the initial robbery? In a village with only 12 crimes a year, you would think that they might have shown a little more desire and interest to get to the bottom of that. It appears that the answer seems to be that the day that the 2009 robbery took place so happened to be the last day that Claudia Lawrence was seen alive, and that the media storm that surrounded her disappearance simply meant that North Yorkshire police had bigger fish to fry than investigating a rural post office robbery where no one had got hurt. In Robin Garbutt, they had a well-liked, trusted and respected member of the community saying that he was robbed at gunpoint. Okay, no one saw the robbers escaping, but there was also no reason not to trust Garbutt's account, and the investigation just wasn't going to go anywhere without witnesses or suspects, so it was left to fizzle out 
and the North Yorkshire Police just turned their attentions to Operation Cabin, the first investigation into the disappearance of Claudia Lawrence instead. Now before I continue on about the trial, I want to talk a little about the post office and specifically their Horizon software. Horizon software was introduced into the post office network from 1999 after it had been developed by Fujitsu for use in tasks like transactions, accounting and stock taking. But from the start, some sub-postmasters had complained of bugs in the system after it reported shortfalls in their accounts, sometimes to the tune of many thousands of pounds. This led to no less than 736 sub-postmasters and mistresses being prosecuted for false accounting and theft between the years 2000 and 2014. That works out roughly about a tidy one a week. Some of these people convicted were imprisoned, whilst others were financially ruined. There were even reports of postmasters driven to remortgaging their homes in a desperate attempt to fill in the gaps in the accounts and many were shunned by the communities in which they'd lived and work, with people convinced that they'd been embezzling. However, maintaining their innocence, some 555 claimants in total, whose names had been besmirched, had raised civil cases, and in December 2019, at the end of a long-running legal battle, a High Court judgment ruled that the Horizon system was not remotely robust for the first 10 years of its use, and that the system contained bugs, errors and defects, meaning that there was a material risk that perceived shortfalls in the branch accounts were caused by the system. The post office subsequently agreed to settle with the 555, and went on to pay some £58 million in damages, after legal fees that amounted to somewhere in the region of £12 million between the claimants. Now, whilst Robin Garbutt did admit himself that not all of the shop's takings went through the till, and he was not one of the 555 civil case claimants, there is evidence to suggest that Horizon's financial records do show the same pattern in his accounts as in those reported erroneously elsewhere by the software. But police maintained their belief that Garbutt had been embezzling, and that part of the reason why Garbutt would have staged the robbery after murdering Diana was because he had to cover up the financial shortfall in the business before their trip to America, fearing that accounting discrepancies would be discovered in that time. Prosecutor David Hatton told the jury, Any significant discrepancy in the cash holdings would have come to light, as a relief postmistress was due to cover for the couple while they went on holiday to the US. Ties up the theory neatly, eh? But was this enough reason to find a man guilty of murder? At the time of Robin Garbutt's trial, it was not known that Horizon had had so many serious faults in its system, and so the jury was allowed to hear much of this evidence without challenge. Having said that, during the trial, Robin insisted that the amount that was in the safe, and that was subsequently taken by the man with the hold-all, tallied exactly with the post office accounts. If that was the case, then there could not have been a discrepancy on Horizon's end. The reported amount in the safe tallied with what was in the system, and as the safe was definitely empty that day, it's a reasonable assumption that it either went with a mystery man with a hold-all, or with Robin. 
You might at this point be realising that the Crown seemed to have very little physical evidence on which to base their prosecution and relied heavily on supposition. In fact, there was no forensic evidence at all that tied Garbutt to the crime scene. There was no blood spatter found on his clothing and none of his DNA was found on the pillowcase underneath Diana's head, nor on the murder weapon, which, as we heard in the first part, was determined to be the 56cm rusty iron bar that was found on the wall of Nixon's garage opposite the shop. But there was also the matter of a pair of blood-stained and soiled boxer shorts which were found in a rubbish bin near to the shop. These shorts were actually used as supposed evidence to help persuade a magistrate's court to refuse Robin Bale in his court appearances during the run-up to the trial. Even though it was later determined that they didn't even belong to him, they belonged to a neighbour. A neighbour who I'm sure was very happy to have his blood-stained budgie smugglers paraded around as evidence, especially when a cursory check would have revealed that they weren't even Robin's size. This formed part of what the defence counsel Jamie Hill described as follows. I would be tempted to describe the crime scene management as something of a comedy of errors if it wasn't so serious for the defendant. And that's quite a fair description, for at the trial it emerged that there had been a series of serious police failings in this aspect over the course of the investigation. Firstly was in relation to the iron bar the police had alleged to be the murder weapon. When it was tested for DNA, for reasons unexplained, only months after discovery, three different DNA profiles were found upon it. One was that of Diana Garbutt, the second was of an unidentified male, and the third was eventually determined as belonging to a police officer, PC Darren Thompson a fact that had initially been concealed from Robin Garbutt's lawyers. PC Thompson's DNA had reportedly been originally classed as that of another unknown male, but when identified, the profile was found to be consistent with a carrier of the bar at Discovery not wearing gloves to do so. Speaking about the Discovery, he said that he'd been present at the time that the bar was discovered, which was two days after the murder, but he could not remember which of his colleagues he was paired with during the search, although he could remember that whoever this colleague was, they were the ones to discover it and had called him over. His lack of memory concerning this could possibly be explained away by the fact that PC Thompson was not called upon to make a witness statement about the events of the murder until the 12th of October 2010, seven months after the bar was discovered. Now, there is little argument that the bar was the murder weapon, given that Diana's DNA was found on one end, and there were matching rust markings to it on the pillowcase beneath her head when she was, where she was killed, and in the matted blood in her hair. But what is called into question is when, exactly, the iron bar was placed on the wall next to Nixon's garage. It emerged after the trial that TV footage taken from the day of the murder showed the top of the wall where the weapon was found, but there was no iron bar visible. At least one journalist had reportedly sat on that wall to get a decent vantage point of the shop and confirmed that there was no sign of the bar that day. Bill Nixon, the garage owner, swore that he'd never seen the bar before on his premises and corroborated the fact that members of the press had been standing on the wall where it was found taking pictures. 
So while the prosecution hypothesised that Robin Garbutt had placed the bar on the wall under the cover of darkness in the early hours after murdering his wife, we now know that this was highly unlikely and that the bar was placed there sometime from Tuesday evening onwards. So, does a raider take the weapon he's killed someone with away with him, it possibly containing traces of his DNA, to then return and hide it two days later, about 20 feet from the scene of the murder? The next act of the Comedy of Errors relates to the crime scene itself. The trial judge, Mr Justice Openshaw, who as a side note we've met several times before on the show, and coincidentally, whose father's murder I told the tale of in an episode from a few series back, The Judge and the Grudge. Described the stewardship of the crime scene rather reservedly I thought as well, as having demonstrated a regrettable lack of professionalism. It transpired that two lamps which had been knocked over in the bedroom, perhaps in the course of a struggle, had not been tested for evidence and had instead been moved from their position and put away in a wardrobe. There were reportedly signs of blood spotting on at least one of these, although at trial it was heard that there was no sign of disturbance at all in the bedroom where she died and that Diana was asleep when she was attacked. Along the same theme, it seems that police also did not test either the bedside mirror or the carpet beside the bed for splatter though they did examine Robin's clothes and found them to be clean of blood. So, there was no sign of disturbance reportedly, because things had allegedly been tidied away. Third, and perhaps most crucially in this shit show, was that police were also blamed for the loss of what might well have been a vital piece of evidence from the crime scene. In crime scene photographs, a light brown clump of hair could be seen on one of the pillows around Diana's body, reportedly just next to a bloody handprint. It didn't appear to belong to either Diana or Robin, as Diana had dark brown hair, whilst Robin's is grey. Yet, despite being clearly visible in these photographs, this clump of hair never made it to the forensic labs for testing. Under cross-examination, a DNA expert stated that the clump of hair might well have had hair follicles present, which could have led to a DNA profile being created, and in turn might have proved that there was someone else in the room at the time of Diana's murder. Of course, given the regrettable lack of professionalism Mr Justice Openshaw so rightly described, there is every chance that an officer merely brushed the hair right over the top of Diana's body. I wish I could say that possibility is a stretch, but the shamble of bollocks we've heard so far isn't all their incompetence amounts to. Adding to the idea that the North Yorkshire police were not in the possession of basic crime scene management or policing procedure knowledge, they actually allowed Pauline Dye, the neighbour who had accompanied Robin Garbutt before police arrived, to wash her hands in the sink after handling Diana's dead body. Boggles the mind, eh? Journalist Neil Wilby, who's written extensively about the case, has a quote from an anonymous source, a man he describes as a well-known retired senior police officer and commanding detective, who told him, I quote, Smaller country forces didn't have the well-oiled machinery and the know-how of their big city cousins to roll out an effective and efficient investigation 
in the golden hours just after a serious crime has been committed. They often didn't have the required personnel either. The cream of the crop tends to be skimmed off by the larger forces. Perhaps, but there's still basic bloody common sense, isn't there? Now there are certainly elements of the police investigation into Operation Nardu that make it seem as if the claims of this source are true in this instance. When reading about the Garbutt case, again and again you come across the phrase confirmation bias. This is the tendency to search for, interpret, favour and recall information in a way that confirms or supports a prior belief. A good example of which can be found in the Yorkshire Ripper investigation. In that, once police had received a tape from a man with a Wearside accent who claimed to be the Ripper, lead investigator George Oldfield became convinced that the Ripper must have a Wearside accent, and it was then that the Ripper inquiry went off on the tragic tangent that it did. This assumption of Oldfield directly influenced the amount of time it took for Peter Sutcliffe, who of course possessed a Yorkshire accent, to be arrested and charged. And there are examples of confirmation bias at play in Operation Nardu. Namely, from the moment that officers arrived at the post office in Melsonby on the morning of the murder, they suspected that Robin Garbutt was guilty. As we heard with the testimony of PC Reed, the second officer on the scene, who all but confirmed this in the evidence he gave at trial when he spoke of Garbutt's story not ringing true and how he sobbed without tears. Attempting to play on this weakness in the prosecution's argument, in his closing statement, defence barrister Jamie Hill said, You can't just cherry-pick the evidence. You can't just ignore the parts of the evidence that you don't like in order to put forward a theory. I'm going to suggest that the prosecution case is nothing more than that, a theory. Ever since, they've been trying to make that evidence fit the theory. And there's certainly plenty to suggest that this was indeed the case. The prosecution had managed to create a very compelling narrative of what had happened on the morning of Diana's murder, though they did have to put significantly less weight on some evidence than others, and overlook some potentially key witness statements also. It was clearly claimed that judging by the amount that the food in Diana's stomach had broken down by her time of death, she must have been killed between 2.30 and 4.30 in the morning. But at trial, the jury heard evidence from regular post office customer Brian Hurd, who told them that he'd been in the shop at around 6.45am on the Tuesday morning, and had heard what he thought was a woman's voice which called out, Robin, from the direction of the Garbutt's living quarters, to which Robin replied, Yes, Di, in a moment. Brian Hurd was convinced it was this day in question, as it was unusually for him a Tuesday that he had off from work. Now, when Robin Garbutt had initially been questioned by police, he'd failed to give them this particular piece of information, but on the stand, when questioned about this, Garbutt claimed that it had indeed happened, but he only remembered it later, I quote, because of the situation that I'm in, and that I've been able to read and look at people's statements. Now I don't know about you, but I think I'd remember it if my wife was murdered that morning and it was the last spoken word we'd ever had. Having said that though, if it were true and Brian Hurd insisted that it was, then it was a key example of the prosecution allowing their confirmation bias 
to influence the way in which they approached witness testimony. When it came to deliberations, the jury really had just a couple of questions to ask themselves. When did the murder occur, and did the robbery take place? If they were to come to the conclusion that no robbery had occurred, then it stood to reason that the time of death was when the forensic analysis had placed it, between 2.30 and 4.30am, and that the only person capable of carrying out that attack was Robin Garbutt himself. Again, it goes back to the words of the prosecutor David Hatton, who in his closing speech repeated what he'd said earlier, I quote, One of the questions you will have to consider if you accept this evidence is the likelihood of a robber or robbers being prepared to violently kill a female sleeping in her own bed at all, but then, having done so, to wait for four to six hours before going downstairs to rob the post office. And then it has to be said, having been prepared to bludgeon the lady to death upstairs and wait for that length of time to leave the defendant himself unharmed and unrestrained to raise the alarm. The purported time of death was the only evidence police actually possessed that could theoretically link Robin Garbutt to the murder. Yet there was nothing to suggest that there had been anyone else present that morning. None of the neighbours had seen anyone acting suspiciously, let alone someone wearing a balaclava whilst clutching a hold-all and handgun. At the trial, Robin Garbutt came across as a man devastated by the loss of his wife. He called her his soulmate, and professed that the two of them were, I quote, as close as close could be. When asked how he now felt about his wife's death, Garbutt choked back the tears as he said, All I want is die back, it's all I want. I miss her more than I ever have, and I just want her back. Yet, according to the prosecution's reality, he'd spent most of his time downstairs working in the shop, delivering food to pensioners and fiddling the accounts, while his wife sat upstairs alone, messaging other men and trawling dating sites. The prosecution claimed, The perception of the Melsonby villagers of a rosy and loving relationship was far from the full picture. Here was a man with increasing debt, desperately trying not to outwardly fail in his business or his unhappy, unsettled marriage. Over the course of the four-week trial, the court had heard from some 68 witnesses for the prosecution, 18 called for the defence, as well as from Robin himself, but in the end it came down to what took place between 8.35 and 8.37am on that fateful Tuesday morning, the 23rd of March 2010. The question was simple. Were those 78 seconds enough time for an armed robber to have accosted Robin Garbutt? to have him lock the front of the shop door, turn the lights off, open and empty the safe and shop till, for Robin to then see the robber then run out through the back door, and for him to have then headed upstairs to discover his wife's body, before making a frantic 999 call to the emergency services. Ten of the twelve jury members said no. On the 19th of April 2011, Following 13 hours deliberation and the jury of 8 men and 4 women's verdict of guilty by a majority of 10 to 2, Robin Garbutt, who shook his head as he was convicted, was sentenced to life imprisonment with the recommendation that he serve no less than 20 years 
before being considered for release. Pulling no punches whatsoever with his sentencing remarks, Mr Justice Openshaw, who during the trial had taken the step of remanding Garbutt into custody after he'd given his evidence, said that Garbutt had shown no remorse over his wife and added, He has always accompanied his lies with sanctimonious lies of his love for her. By their verdict, the jury have exposed this as pure humbug. This was a brutal, planned, cold-blooded murder of his wife as she lay sleeping in bed. There was no struggle, she never awoke. He struck her three savage blows, smashing his skull and causing immediate death, as clearly he intended. He then feigned cheerfulness as he served customers as he attempted to deceive them that all was well. The story of the armed robber, he claimed, was ludicrous from beginning to end. As he was led out of court to begin his life sentence, Garbutt kept his head down and did not look at his family and friends, or at his mother-in-law Agnes Gaylor, who broke down and wept as the sentence was passed. Speaking after the verdict, Detective Superintendent Lewis Raw said, I hope that the murder conviction will provide some measure of comfort and closure, allowing her family to start rebuilding their lives after a very traumatic year. As for Robin Garbutt, he's shown himself to be a calculating and deceptive individual who attempted an elaborate cover-up after he violently ended his wife's life as she lay asleep in bed. His actions that morning not only killed Diana, they also devastated the lives of Diana's family and plunged the small, close-knit community into fear. That he did not have the decency to admit his guilt from the outset, and therefore spared Diana's family the pain of reliving the tragic events in full during a trial, demonstrates the type of selfish and deluded individual that Robin Garbutt really is. Outside the court, the message from Agnes Gaylor was much simpler, saying, Diana meant the world to us. She was a beautiful and caring girl and we loved her with all of our hearts. Our loss is unbearable. We can never bring Diana back, but our cherished memories of her will never fade. I am not going to let Robin enter my head after today. Amongst the residents of Melsonby, however, was a sense of surprise and disbelief. Neighbour Ian Simpson said, We've had faith in Robin from the start. I can only speak for myself and not the rest of the village, but it was a very unexpected verdict because he hasn't diminished in our eyes at all and we're still trying to make sense of what happened. Vanessa Golding, who was a friend of both Robin and Diana, told the TV show 999 Murder on the Line. You only needed to see the look on Robin's face throughout the trial, let alone on the day to understand that this man did not do it. This man is not capable of doing it. Now since his conviction more than a decade ago, Robin Garbutt has continued to protest his innocence. In 2012, an appeal was made to the Court of Appeal in London, with the crux of the legal team's argument being to counter the police's assertion at his trial that his motive for murder was that he was stealing from the post office in order to fund his and Diana's lifestyle. They'd been ruling on new evidence submitted, namely the submission of post office accounts from between 2004 and 2009, 
as well as a little evidence submitted about the amount of cash requests made by postmasters to HQ which would trigger an inquiry or a request for justification. However, the new documents appear to have been somewhat limited in their scope, and following review, a panel of Court of Appeal judges, led by Lord Justice Hughes, ruled that Garbutt's conviction was indeed safe, and the appeal was dismissed. As of 2020, Robin Garbutt had amounted to his third application to have his conviction reviewed. All of these appeals have failed. Despite this, he continues to receive a fair amount of media coverage, mostly thanks to the work of his supporters, who operate through the website robingarbuttofficial.com and who were led by Jane Metcalf, an old friend of Robin's who joined the campaign team in 2018. Jane is assisted by Robin's sister Sally Wood and his brother-in-law Mark Stillborn, who previously were at the front of the campaign and who have vocally stood by him over the past decade. But while it appears that the elements of the Robin Garbutt justice campaign have been successful in their aim to drum up coverage of the case, they've been less so in making any meaningful progress towards getting his conviction overturned. Speaking before a planned vigil at the Royal Courts of Justice in London two years ago, Jane Metcalf said, We are taking a banner with photos of Robin on it to do our absolute best to tell as many people as possible about this shocking miscarriage of justice that still leaves poor Robin living each day and night in a high-security prison and his poor mum and close family struggling to cope with the pain that that brings. Many people have always supported Robin and have known he wasn't capable of this. The only evidence was circumstantial in which he lived there. The thing is that this isn't entirely true. The evidence concerning the fish and chips that they ate the previous night is actually quite conclusive, although since then, the campaign team claim that this has been contradicted both by a separate Home Office pathologist and also by Dr David Rouse, the expert hired by Garbutt's legal team. Now I looked up Dr David Rouse, he's a former Home Office pathologist who is now retired but who still offers his services for court proceedings. I'm sure that he's very good and very thorough, but at the moment, there is no actual proof that anything that the campaign team have said has scientific basis. That's the problem with this case. Since his 2011 conviction, there's been loads of information, articles and theories put around the internet, and now, 10 years later, it's become increasingly difficult to tell what is fact and what isn't, for Robin Garbutt's campaign team and supporters have done a brilliant job at muddying the waters. You'll find a lot of articles and interviews which suggest that something is fact, but without said providing any actual evidence to support the claim. Let me give you an example. A statement from a witness claimed that they'd seen Robin Garbutt on the village green the evening before the murder, at about 10.30pm, carrying a hold-all under his arm. Robin denied this, saying that he was already in bed at the time. That statement later became part of the prosecution's narrative at his trial, with prosecutor David Hatton saying, That night, a neighbour spotted him walking on the village green with a bag. Where could he go? He had nothing. He returned. The pressure, tension and ill-feeling erupted in extreme violence, and he killed his wife. Jane Metcalf later claimed in an interview that this sighting of Robin on the village green at 10.30pm 
was not Robin at all, but who instead was a man who, according only to her it must be remarked, looked incredibly similar to Robin. She even used the phrase, he could have been his brother. The claim Jane Metcalf made was that this doppelganger of Robin had been walking on the village green that evening and had actually picked up his small, dark-coloured dog, which was what the witness had mistaken for a hold-all. The campaign insists that Robin was never on the green that night, and that it was solely the man with the little dog under his arm. But something which could easily have been established beyond any doubt never was, and this was never introduced at trial, for according to Jane Metcalf, this man who could be Robin's twin was apparently conveniently on holiday during the four weeks that the trial was active, and so could not be there to present his own version of events. Of course, this is just hearsay, but what are the chances, eh? Another example is a claim made by Jane Metcalf that the Melsonby post office had been robbed twice before prior to the Garbutts taking over the business in 2003 and so was attractive as an easy and lucrative target. Now surely if that's true, the only post office that must be robbed more on earth is the one in bloody Emmerdale, isn't it? On the 9th of March 2021, it was stated by North Yorkshire Police, via a Freedom of Information request made by the journalist Neil Wilby, that there are no previous armed robberies on record at the post office's address. The campaigners appear to now be adopting an approach very similar to that which they so despised at trial, that if you tell a story in a convincing enough way, then it will be accepted as true. But of course, that can also backfire if your story doesn't hold up to scrutiny, can't it? Robin Garbutt's whole narrative of that morning fails to hold up to scrutiny if you look at it at all closely, and for all that his campaigners can nitpick the details, they can't change the bulk of the story that Robin told to police. No matter how much it sounds like fiction, campaigners are left trying to justify the inclusion of the armed robber and murderer that got away without being seen by a single person during morning rush hour in a small village where everyone knows everyone else. Whilst it is true that the police made a series of shocking errors in their handling of the crime scene, and in the fundamental way that they approached the investigation, it was enough to convince a majority jury to return a guilty verdict, and that verdict still stands. While the view that this verdict may be wrong is still to this day shared by some in Melsonby, Diana's mum Agnes was able to perfectly articulate the counter-argument during an interview with ITV News following the trial. She said, concerning her former son-in-law, I attended every day of the trial, and after listening to every word said, and with great effort to put myself mentally in the jury box with an open mind, I am beyond confident that Mr Garbutt is in the right place. I understand why his family and friends would love to see him freed, but all I hear is, he's such a nice man, he couldn't possibly have done such a thing. But, nice men sadly do. They do indeed. Robin Garbutt is not eligible for parole until 2030, and until then, he will spend his time at high-security Franklin Prison in Durham. However, he continues to maintain his innocence in the crime, a maxim which will affect any decision on parole, and even prisoner recategorisation. 
Now it's easy to lose sight of what is important in cases where the person found guilty of a crime chooses to protest their innocence so vocally, and that's the fact that a woman was brutally murdered, and she's the one who we should be remembering. In 2014, Diana's mum Agnes bought the post office in Melsonby from Robin's relatives for the sum of £130,000. And while villagers were surprised that she would have wanted to buy the place, given what had happened there, they were also hopeful that it might one day reopen as a village shop. At the time of purchase, Agnes stated that what she wanted to do was merely finish off the work on the kitchen that Diana had started before her death. With that work completed, in June 2018, the former shop and post office was put back onto the market for a price of £325,000. The estate agent blurb underneath the listing was a fairly standard one, reading, This unique property is available for sale, comprising of a spacious ground floor retail shop with storerooms, as well as a first floor residential flat with three good sized bedrooms. Located in the popular and sought-after village Melsonby, in Richmond, this property has potential to be developed into a four-bedroomed residential property or utilised as a commercial and residential property. However, where it stood out from the norm was what it also added as a footnote, which read, A crime has previously taken place at this property. Information upon request. Despite that, the place has since been sold. So, there you have it then. That concludes the story of Diana and Robin Garbutt. And it's one hell of a tale, this one, isn't it? It's one I've been dying to bring to the show for ages. And so, so many questions come with it too. A very thought-provoking and fascinating tale I found. And I'm now going to ask for you guys' opinion. Put yourselves on that jury. Think about all we've heard over the episodes. From Garbutt's account of that day, through to the police investigation, the crime scene and evidence handling, the establishing of Diana's time of death, the establishing of possible motives, and tell me whether you'd found him guilty. Do you believe that there was really an armed robbery and murder by person or persons unknown that morning? Or did Robin Garbutt just kill his wife that night, and while she lay brutally murdered upstairs, did he then form a somewhat desperate plan in his mind of a false armed robbery to be put into action at the stroke that that post office safe could be opened? And in the interim, did he just go about sorting the shop like normal and chatting to the customers for cover? And for what possible reason? To cover up financial wrongdoing? Fury over his wife's extramarital indiscretions? Is it a fabrication that he stuck to for the past decade? because that's a special kind of cold-heartedness, if he has. But there are a couple of points that raised questions for me, I'm sure that it has for you too, such as, why wasn't the murder weapon discovered immediately, and why had it been abandoned there? Why does a raider armed with a gun need an iron bar, and, would, and why kill Diana anyway, when the threat of a masked intruder holding someone at gunpoint would surely suffice compliance? Why was no one seen fleeing the scene? Why had the normally conscientious Garbutt left that back door unlocked that day? And why, if the premises had been robbed in an almost carbon copy raid, almost a year to the day previously, why had CCTV not been put in, as money had been allocated for? Food for thought, eh? What do you think? 
Now, I'm not denying that North Yorkshire Police did a shambolic job of the investigation, especially the crime scene management and its handling of evidence, and I would have to say that any possible future grounds for appeal for Garbutt would surely genesis from an unsafe verdict due to their mishandling of evidence from the scene. But that's not quite the same thing as saying that a completely innocent man is serving life, is it? Now in the episode show notes are several links that I do recommend you have a look at and take a deep dive into the case, for it makes for fascinating, perhaps thought-provoking reading that we've somewhat condensed here. For this one is such a complex tale that really, it probably could have been almost another thriller in length. Though I stress almost, one of those per series is way more than bloody enough, believe me. I hope that it's one that you found interesting and informative though, and my deepest thanks go out to Jess Carter for the sterling work she's done helping you bring the tale. We had a brief foray through Thriller, but it's been a while since me and Jess have collaborated, and it was good to do it again, it really was. I know I speak for it also when I say we would love to hear your thoughts and feedback on the tale brought to you in the All Shop and No Sex episodes, which you can do so in the thread that's up in the show's Facebook discussion group, or by getting in touch through any of the show's social media links, you know by now that I'm always happy to hear from you lot wherever. If this has been your first introduction to the work that Jess Carter does, then head over and check out some of the cases that she's covered on Outlines. Each that she covers there becomes the definitive cover of the chosen case. I can't recommend it highly enough. I'm back solely in the writing chair for the next time around, so I best go and choose what I'm going to bring for that right now. On behalf of Jess also, I thank you kindly for joining us for the episode today, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.